morning everybody thank you to be with you this morning a uh, great pleasure for me to be with you this morning and thank you pastor for giving me this opportunity to really minister to all of us in god's grace plan and purpose <coughs> uh in fact yesterday i was preaching at the banaswadi bible church that's the baptist church i was preaching yesterday evening they had called me to specially in their uh, missions week celebration and i was preaching there and uh, i contacted uh, not i but prem uh, prem's cousin contacted him and said i'm free this morning and he very readily uh, asked his pastor and pastor to call me here thank you very much for that and the topic that i would like to touch uh, today <coughs> think to the lord all the earth proclaim his salvation day after day proclaim his salvation day after day all right uh the first hour of this uh, morning you have fulfilled the first part of this verse sing to the lord you've done that and now what do you have to do proclaim proclaim his salvation you come here sunday after sunday my dear friends for what for food right you come here sunday after sunday to get spiritual food so that the next 6 days you're out in the world as god's warriors as god's people as god's representatives god wants to work in and through you in this world that's what worship is all about we worship god we praise him we glorify him we receive from him we are filled by his uh, power his grace his mercy and we go out into the world my dear friends to be his people so there has to be a connect between sunday and monday to saturday there cannot be a disconnect you cannot say i come to the church enjoy singing i enjoy all that's going on i enjoy fellowship but then monday onwards that's my workplace that's a different world altogether that's not what god has called us God has called us to be witnesses where we are. Right? You are doctors, engineers, lawyers, wherever you are, and that's your calling. I heard one preacher say you're first a missionary and then then a doctor engineer. No, I believe you're first what you are. If you're a doctor, you're a doctor first. Right? That's your calling. And in that calling, my dear friends, God has called you to glorify his name. Right? So, uh, in your workplace, don't use your the time that uh, uh, the company has given you to work to minister to others many people do that <laughs> right you have been called to work there you got to put in effort they are paying you for the work that you are putting in okay but you build up yourself you build up your people my dear friends so that you can minister whenever there is time and need okay so proclaiming proclaiming his salvation day after day and if you want to proclaim the salvation of god which you have been called to proclaim you need to train yourself you need to train your mind all right and this book that pastor prem just talked about rethinking mission to the educated middle class this is uh, my thesis for my uh, demon that i did from saax right and so uh, it's a well researched book it's not a devotional book so it's not easy reading it takes time effort to sit down read and understand what's going on i have put in nearly 5 years of work in this book so it's not easy reading at all okay so but if you are interested really to be witnesses at your workplace this book may help you all right so i've got a few copies if you do want please uh, contact me after the service If you want to be witnesses in your workplace, if you want to be witnesses to uh, to your neighbors, all right, uh, to the educated people, okay, what are the things that you need to do? There are four steps that I have especially uh, put down, and I'm going to talk of these four steps very, very briefly. Step number one: Why do you want to proclaim? Why do you want to proclaim? the reason of proclamation my dear friends 
is Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:14 what does he say he says for the Christ for Christ's love or the love of Christ compels me what does it compel him because we are convinced he says i am convinced that one died for all and hence all died he had a deep conviction he was absolutely certain of why he wanted to preach the gospel okay the question that i would like to put to you this morning is are you convinced my dear friends that uh, salvation is in christ alone and if you say yes i would like to ask the question further why why are you convinced what is it that has made you so convinced that there is salvation only in jesus christ and in no one else <coughs> how much time do i get sir what apna for you correct in 11 okay 11:30 all right so why are you convinced if someone were to ask you that question why are you convinced that in christ alone probably you would give a few verses like acts chapter 4 verse 12 There is no name in heaven and earth by which one can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Probably you'd give those verses. Are those verses enough, my dear friends, to convince you? You need to work out your answer. Don't take verses from here and there, my dear friends, and say that this is my conviction. Because anyone can break down that conviction. Anyone can break down that conviction. why was paul convinced paul was convinced uh, of this particular fact that there is a salvation in christ alone for two reasons number one is the confrontation that he had with jesus christ on the road to damascus he had a first hand experience of who jesus is on the road to, road to damascus we know the story right he was going to damascus there to imprison those who believed in jesus christ on the way jesus met him and uh, there he got blinded went to damascus my dear friends he once again was uh, he got his eyes back after 3 days but was that all if you read galatians i'm not going to open to those verses but in galatians where he's trying to prove that he is an apostle because uh, his apostleship was questioned by the galatians he tells that after i got my confrontation with jesus christ after jesus christ confronted me after i came to know that jesus christ is alive or i do i did not go to jerusalem but rather i went to the desert in arabia and i was there for 3 years he doesn't tell us why he went there but it's uh, very easy for us to guess why he went there in 3 years he was there what was he doing before he went to jerusalem he was there working out this whole concept of salvation i have met someone called jesus or i have heard his voice i have experienced him but does the word of god really concur with my uh, with my experience very important the experience that i have had on the road to damascus does that kind of concur with what is given in the old year the old testament only right does it concur with that does the whole concept of a suffering messiah who's going to rise again is that given there in the torah is it given there in the uh, in the psalms and the proverbs is it given there in the in uh, uh, the prophets do they talk about it has that been revealed that is what he was working out and that is what gave him conviction at the end of 3 years that yes this person that i have met this voice that i have heard this experience that i have got is truly an experience from jesus christ very important our experiences should match with the word of god and many my dear friends in today's uh, uh, time who come with experiences i went to heaven and i saw this i saw that lot of things they will say but does it match with the word of god you should open the word of god and say that everything that we need to experience is given here now what you say you have experienced okay does it match with this for the catholics my dear friends this is not the ultimate what is the ultimate the pastor or the priest or the father what he says 
is the ultimate. For us, pastor is not the ultimate. I am not the ultimate. We are under the authority of the word of God. And unless we speak what the word of God says, you have a right to say, I do not believe what you are saying. You have a right to say that. Right? So please keep that in mind. I, a pastor, Pastor Prem, and all of us are under the authority of God. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to do when he went into the desert and he tried, my dear friends, to work out his conviction. And that is what you and I need to do. Work out our conviction. Where is salvation first of all given in the word of God? I want to ask you. We can have some interactions, right? A little bit. Right? Where is salvation first of all given in the word of God? Genesis? Which verses? Which verse? First and foremost in Genesis 3.15. Right? Genesis 3.15 where you know, very clearly, Satan has been told that the uh, seed of the woman is going to crush your, crush your, uh, your head and you are going to uh, wound his heel. That's the first. Okay? After that, where does, where does God start the salvation? Or oh, the concept of salvation. I won't say salvation. The concept of salvation. Where does he start? What is that? Exodus. Exodus. Okay. What is that? Yeah, please, please. If you're wrong, it's okay. Oh, that's uh, right in the beginning. Okay, all right. Controversial. <laughs> okay, where else? All right, you should be knowing this. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Very important verses which all Christians need to know. Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Where he calls Abraham and he gives him three promises. He says... I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, number one. First promise, I'm going to make you numerous. That's uh, the second promise, my dear friends. I'm going to make you a big nation. And what is the third promise? Through you, all nations are going to be blessed. Through you, all nations are going to be blessed. That's the third promise. And that's where salvation starts. God is saying, it's through your seed that I'm going to bring salvation to the earth. You need to work out your conviction right from there. Don't start from, uh, from Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 that we have been told to go and proclaim. The question will always come, why? What is the background? Is Jesus something that is cut off from the Old Testament? Something new that he said? Genesis uh, or Matthew chapter 28 to 18 to 20. Is it something new that he said? The Great Commission? No. Jesus didn't say anything new in the New Testament. It's all connected to the Old Testament. He was only pushing the Old Testament forward, fulfilling that. That is the conviction, my dear friends, that Paul had. Unless you have worked out your conviction, you will never be able to go and give the gospel. Proclaim. When you say, unless I pro proclaim, my dear friends, there are different ways to proclaim. You can go and give tracts. That's probably the easiest way. Okay? But that's the least effective way according to me. You don't know. You attract, alright, you believe the Holy Spirit will work in the lives. Okay? But in most of the cases, that doesn't happen because the Holy Spirit doesn't work in vacuum. The Holy Spirit works, my dear friends, where the, where the seed is there, where certain things have been removed. Okay? There is a clarity about what the gospel is. There is something called short-term evangelism. If someone you are meeting someone, you want to give the gospel, you want to share a tract, that's fine. But there is something called long-term evangelism where you are meeting people day after day, your colleagues, your uh, neighbors. There it has to be a different approach. And there, that's what I'm talking about. Conviction, first and foremost. Okay? You need to work out your answers. All of you, work out your answers very, very carefully throughout the Bible. Why do I believe what is given there? Why do I believe that Jesus is the only way? There is no other way except uh, Jesus Christ. Why do I believe that? Okay? And that's, that's the session by itself. <clears throat> Alright, step number two. You need to have a burden for the lost. Okay? And I'm going to explain this. Okay? What the burden for the lost is. And I'm going to open 
maybe I'm just going to open a few verses from the Bible. You can open to Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. Luke chapter 13 and verses 10 to 17. And here is Jesus Christ. We know all this. We know this particular story. Okay. This is on a Sabbath day. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And please just uh, listen very carefully, even as it's being read. Just try to see if there is some, something absurd that you find here. Okay? Uh, verse 2, verse 11. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Women, you are uh, set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not on Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day for whom, for what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Verse 18, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? So on and on so forth. Anything uh, absurd that you find here? Here is Jesus, just like I am uh, preaching today. Jesus was preaching. Right? He was teaching from the word of God. Then he sees a woman there who has been bent. She has been bent over for 18 long years. Right? And she, and it says here that she had been bound by Satan. Now, not all infirmity is from Satan. Please keep that in mind. Not all sicknesses are from Satan. There is something called the deterioration of the body also. A body also gets deteriorated and sickness can come in due to various factors. But Satan can also be a reason. So we need to differentiate between that. Right? But that's not the point. The point here is Jesus is teaching and in the very next verse he says he saw a woman. He did not continue teaching or preaching. He stopped there. He stopped there and called the woman forward. And he set her free. He says, woman, I set you free. Okay? And uh, uh, what is the show about Jesus Christ? Compassion, okay? Compassion which could not be withheld. He could not wait for his sermon to get over and then call the women. Right? If I was there, probably I would say, wait, let me finish. I have prepared for two long days. Let me finish first. After that, we will see all healing and everything later on. First preaching. Not Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ. He was so touched in his heart. You know, I like that that uh, phrase which our uh, which our uh, leader, worship leader, said. He said, "Jesus is not a healer; he's a wounded healer." I like that phrase a lot. He's a his heart was filled with compassion, so much so, my dear friends, that he said, "I stop my preaching. Please come forward. This is more important than what I am preaching now. My preaching will take uh, place next." And he healed the woman. His heart went out to the suffering of that woman. Continued preaching. That means to say, his preaching, teaching and his work, they all went together. He did not dichotomize between his preaching and teaching and the healing and other good work. And that shows the condition of his heart. It shows that his heart was wounded. It, it was suffering, my dear friends, uh, looking at the suffering of people. And unless we have that kind of a heart, we will never be able to proclaim with compassion. Our proclamation, my dear friends, is not, not something intellectual. It has to be intellectual, but it has to come from the heart. And it will come from the heart only if our heart is wounded. If we feel for the sufferings of people. And that will only happen, my dear friends, 
when you are connected with suffering people. I have a church. You know, I've got some uh, brochures and also uh, newsletters which you can take of the work we are doing. I've got an English church just like you, but it's very small, right? Uh, but we also have work in the slums where we have planted churches. We take missionaries, we train them, we put them in the slums and they plant churches there. I work especially among the educated, you know, there are people who, but I keep on going once in a week, twice in a week to these slums and I see the suffering of people. When I'm in my own church, just like your church, my dear friends, it's so good. A church of respectable people. <laughs> I can come with a tie and a coat, my dear friends, so respectable. You go out in the slums, my dear friends, and you see people suffering. People who have cancer, who do not have, uh, you know, a single part to go to the hospital. I remember a two-year-old girl who had cancer. This was just about two, three months ago, and she died also. And we told them, go to the government hospital. They said, even to register ourselves there, we don't have money. Maybe a thousand rupees or something, you know, just for registration. He says, we don't have that much money also. Just a few days back, one of our missionaries, he works in a slum area. He says, a lot of people, a lot of sickness there. You know, there was a lot of uh, uh, rains this time in Gujarat also. And when rains come, we have all these epidemics coming up, all these uh, uh, sicknesses coming up. And they came and told me, a few people there, they are sick. Uh, they went to the doctor and doctor has given them a prescription, says, go and test yourself. And they are sitting in their houses in their hearts because they don't have money to test there. Go and uh, test, uh, give the, uh, take the test that, uh, that the doctor said. Fortunately, I had put this forward to some of our church members and one church member gave us 90,000 rupees. She said, put this, take this and use it only for such purpose. I told them, you want me to give money from that, go and tell them to go and get them tested. When you come across such cases, when you're connected with such cases, your heart bleeds. Your heart suffers. And it is in the suffering of your own self that you are able to see the lostness of people. Unless we are really, we are able to suffer along with people, we will never be effective. Keep that in mind. Alright, let's go ahead. was touched with the suffering of the woman. Satan has limited the vision of this woman. Just think over it. This woman was bent over for 18 years. All that she could see for 18 years, my dear friends, were two things. Number one is her feet and the ground around her feet. That's all she could see. Think of her condition. If she had to uh, see someone, someone, my dear friends, she would have to uh, see it in a slant way. She could never stand up, shake hands with people and see people eye to eye. Today also there are people, my dear friends, who have been bound by Satan in different ways. We need to be going along with them. There are people suffering in different ways. We need to stand with them. Right? We need to be touched by the suffering of the world. Step number three, very important. When we want to give the gospel, we need to know the worldview of people. We need to know the worldview of the people that we are uh, wanting to give the gospel to. <clears throat> what do you mean by the worldview? The way that uh, one looks at ultimate reality, the way that people look at God, people look at creation, people look at man, salvation. We have a particular way of looking at these things. Uh, Hindu, my dear friends, will not have this particular way. He has a different way of looking at things. When we say God, you know, we have a concept of the God of the Bible. He has a concept of the God, some other God, completely different from our God. For them, Brahma, the ultimate, my dear friends, is nirguna, without any gunas, without any attributes. Our God is full of attributes. He is a personal God, a God with personality, completely different. Okay? So we need to learn their worldview, very, very important. Okay? We need to know their worldview. And why is it important to know their worldview? When we speak through our worldview, the message is decoded wrongly. When we speak through our own worldview, it is decoded. Let me give you an example. 
I've got two grandchildren. Okay, one is nine years old, and the other is around four. Right, and the younger one, of course, they live in Goa. I was a pastor in Goa. They live in Goa, and uh, of course, we are now living in Ahmedabad. They had come for holidays in May, and one afternoon, I was resting, and there is four-year-old whose name is Abby Abigail. She was there at my side, and she says, "Aja, tell me a story." I'm not a great storyteller. <laughs> I know I know a few stories only. So I said, "All right, I do you know the lion and the mouse?" They're okay. You tell me. I started. You know, there was a lion in the jungle, and she retorted back, "Yes, the lion's name was Leo." I'm telling her a story, and she is telling me something back. The lion's name was Leo. I said, "Okay, that's fine. Whether his name was Leo or not, that doesn't really trouble me." And I kept on telling a story how the lion was very proud and this and that, and then it came to the point where it says, "Once a hunter came into the jungle, and she immediately retorted." Aja, there is no hunter in the story. I said, "What's happening? I am telling her a story, but she knows some other story. It's the story of a lion. I am also telling her the story of a lion. She also knows the story of a lion. Now, whatever I am telling her, she is assimilating that, you know, through her story, through the story that she knows." Exactly what happens when we give the gospel, my dear friends, without knowing the world. If I had known the story of Leo the lion, probably my story would have been a little different. But I didn't know that, and I didn't bother. So, very important that we know the world. We speak through the worldview of of people. Otherwise, they'll decode it wrongly. All right? When we know the worldview and we speak through their worldview, we can gain their attention. Okay? In adopting the other's worldview, we are able to contextualize our message. We are able to know exactly what we want to speak. Okay? So, if you want to communicate, rise to a Hindu, my dear friends. You need to know terms like Brahma. Okay, I'm not going to go in the depth of this. This is a session by itself. Ishwara. What is the difference between Brahma and Ishwara? You should know that. Okay. Both, for them, both are gods. Okay, but you should know what is the difference. What is creation? What is Maya? What is sin? You know, we start when we give the gospel. We, what do we start with? We are all sinners. Start with that with the Hindu and your friends, and they will tell you, "I'm sorry, I'm not a sinner." He says, "You are not a sinner. Yeah, I have not committed any sin. I have not killed any person. I don't go and rob any people. I live a good life. I am good to people. I am a good man." So your first point itself, your wicket is down. You should know what they mean by sin. Karma. They believe in the concept of karma. What is it, and what are the implications of that? Okay. What do you mean by moksha? We talk about uh, in Hinduism, moksha means salvation. What is salvation for them? Hmm? Let me ask you that question. What is salvation for them? We can translate this word. Okay, moksha means yeah. Ultimate realization that they are Brahman, or becoming one with Brahman. And who is Brahman? Brahman is without any gunas, without any attribute. So their whole concept of salvation means they have to get rid of every desire, good or bad. And when they come to the concept of shunya, zero, that's the time they become one with Brahman. All right. So the whole concept of rebirth, they're coming back time and again, is to get rid of all the desires. How different is that from our salvation? The salvation that we believe in. So if you just say it's salvation, it's not going to make any sense to them. Right? So we need to talk from their point of view. What are the paths to attain salvation? Right? They have the three paths. So what are they? We need to know. Now all these things, at least 
superficially we need to know. If not in depth, at least we should know a little bit of these things. Right? I am not saying that you become you know, absolute doctorates in these things. Okay, I am not saying that. Okay, what do you mean by caste? How does caste work out in their daily life? I right, will be talking more about that. But we should be knowing this. Right, Harold Lindsay say, just look at this, it's understanding the mind is another prerequisite to effective evangelism. When you know the minds of people, it's there only that we'll be able to pre-evangelize. Forget evangelization, pre-evangelize. <coughs> but mind of people is meant their thought patterns, how they think, why they think, what do they think. Okay? Of course, this is more of academic, it says the western mind is more conceptual while the Indian mind is more mythological, emotional, this is something what some authors have said. <coughs> okay, this is the conclusion. Okay, step number four, the last step. We've got 15 minutes to go, let me see if we can finish that. If you talk about even Hinduism, within Hinduism also you need to know your target group. What is the target group that you are, you are talking about? Because what a slum dweller believes, what a semi-literate Hindu believes and what a literate Hindu believes are all different. They may be conceptually the same, but in their nuances, my dear friends, they are very much different. So you need to know what is your target group. Now why do I say this? I'll just go to that. As people interact in this world, they interact with different worldviews, they interact with, they have got education, my dear friends. They interact with, uh, uh, you know, different uh, aspects in life. Their worldview alters. I won't say changes completely. There's an altering in the worldview. And when the worldview alters, my dear friends, that's, that opens up windows for us to give the gospel. This book is all about that. What are the changes that happen in the educated uh, Hindu, right? In fact, the uh, original name of the book was Rethinking Mission to the Educated Hindu Middle Class. That was the name of the book. Uh, the uh, publishers, the ISPCK, they asked to remove the word Hindu. They said, please do not put that word. They asked us to remove it. So I said, okay, uh, we removed that. But basically, what all about Hinduism? Okay? Now, when uh, this book is all about how, pe how the uh, worldview of people changes because of urbanization, because of education, because of modernization. And because of those worldview changes, what are the doors or windows that open up for us as Christians to witness to them? Okay? So, you should know which group is being affected by what. Okay? Different groups, as I said, are affected by different things. Okay? So, which group is affected by what? That will determine your target group. Now, I'm going to take the example here of an educated middle class. I'm just going to give you some aspect of the educated middle class Hindu. Okay, what uh, what are the changes that are happening as far as the worldview is concerned, and how that should help us? The educated middle class. They have got educated. They have got now a scientific worldview. This worldview tells them how the world has come about, how it is working, so on and so forth. They have got the mythological worldview. So what happens is there is a constant clash between their mythological worldview and their uh, and the modern scientific worldview. Okay, this is something that is happening. What are the implications of that? We'll just come to that. Number two, <clears throat> because of their education, because of urbanization, because they have come in contact with different worldviews, my dear friends. Now their faith is shaken. They begin to think, is our faith really valid? Alright? You talk to someone about their faith, uh, Hindus, you talk to them about their faith, my dear friends, and you start talking to them about how can your faith be logic, logical? You know, you, you, this head of this thing was cut off and then you it, they took this head and put it on another head. How, how is that possible? You know, what will they tell you? Have you ever tried talking to a Hindu person, logically? They tell you faith is beyond logic. 
faith is beyond logic. Let's not talk logic as far as faith is and it's personal. Okay? We need to know this. Okay, we need to know this. Now faith versus identity. Their faith, my dear friends, is shaken because of what they have learned. Their, uh, their uh, uh, scientific worldview and other worldviews. So they begin, they have begun to think now as to whether their worldview is really true or not. And yet they want to hold on to their worldview. Why? I'll just give you an example. <clears throat> In uh, olden times, most of the Hindus, my dear friends, would have what is called a puja room in their house. Right? You are aware of that? A puja room where they would keep their idols. You know, uh, people, they would go and worship in, uh, in that room. And they would not allow a non-high caste, if there's, if there's talk of a Brahmin, they would not allow a non-Brahmin to come into that room. It happens even now, but to a very low degree. Where we stay, just next to that, there's a balcony, and there was a beehive there. You know, the society people, they said, let's remove the beehive, causing a lot of issues, so they called a man who wanted to remove it, and uh, he had to go to, uh, from, the, from the room of this particular uh, lady who is a doctor, retired doctor, right? MBBS doctor. And she said, attached to this balcony is my puja room. I will not allow this man whom you have bought Pass my puja room. Alright? But such people are very few now. Okay? Most of the idols now which were there in the puja room, where, have they, where are they placed now? Where are they placed? If you have ever gone to your friends' houses, do you see idols of Ganpati or Ganesh or others? Do you see them? Where do you see them? In the bedroom, I would say right in the front room, in the, in the drawing room, or even outside the porch, they would put an idol there. Why is it that those idols which were holy for them, and which people could not see, or they were not allowed to see, now it is placed in the front room? Why is that? Because there is an identity crisis now. There is an identity Their faith in their own religion has been shaken. And yet they don't want to let go. Alright? They want to yet show that we are Hindus. And that is what is going on in India today. This whole aspect of Hindutva, you know, that, that uh, push that is there, from, even from the government side, if you do not say it outside, even what is government is doing, my dear friends, is just to show we are Hindus. They are holding on to that which they know is not true, identity crisis. Right? So we should be knowing this. They are pluralist. They are pluralist. What do you mean by pluralist? Pluralist means there are many roads to the same God. Many roads to the same. And this is educated people. They believe that. Can you counteract that? Have you learned to counteract pluralism? Why pluralism cannot be true? Listen to some of the YouTubes of maybe people like Ravi Zakaria and others who talk about this quite, quite uh, extensively. And one of the things they say is, if all roads are the same God, it means that the same God is sitting at the top. Now, the Hindus believe that there is Brahma without any attributes there. We believe that there is Yahweh with all attributes there. Which God is there? If all roads look to the same God, the same God with at least a similar God should be sitting up there. It's all different gods. The Jains don't believe in any gods. Buddhists, uh, Buddhists don't believe in any gods. For them, there's, there are no gods. Right? So, you should know how to argue out that. Implications of that, of the religious outlook, you know, there is basically a, a private and a public stance for of the Hindus. You know, they, have, they are in a constant mental stress. They know what they believe is wrong, yet they want to hold on to it. There's a fear, my dear friends, of the unknown. Educated people, do they fear the unknown? Educated people, do they fear the unknown? Yes or no? Yes? You know, just next to our house are a doctor couple who's this, and they are MDs. One is MD in urology, one is MD in... Uh, 
gynecology, right? And uh, in the balcony, about I think eight years ago, eight nine years ago, I saw one uh, one stick with a black flag there. I thought maybe it's a duster they have kept, you know, to dust the house or something. I thought, okay, but never moved. It's nine years now, and it's just there. The black has become gray, and the gray is, gray is also gone. It's just there. Winter comes, monsoon comes, summer comes, it's just there. I realized that maybe after a year or two that this is not a duster. This is something that someone has given them. They must have gone to some Baba, some Guru and told them that we are having problems in our practice, problems in our house, this, that, and the Baba would have said, take this black flag, keep it at this particular point in your house and things will go. Educated people, fear of the unknown. Alright? So what is the implication for us as, uh, uh, as Christians? Develop an apologetic approach to witness, not always helpful. Apologetics is not always helpful in India. We talk about logic, they, will, they think uh, religion is not logical, but yet we should be able to at times argue out. Okay? Work on the pluralistic idea of religion, I have already talked on that. Work on the idea of the transmigration of the soul. Why that cannot be true? They believe they keep coming back, coming back. Why that cannot be true? Okay. Class consciousness. This uh, group, the educated middle class, 95% of them is uh, high caste. Do you know that? 95% of them is high caste. Okay. And how caste conscious is this group? Has education, urbanization, modernization taken away all uh, the caste consciousness? Or are they still caste conscious? Are they still caste conscious? The first time the caste was hit when the British brought in what is called the universal law. Law equal for everyone. Otherwise there was called what was called the Hindu law. The Hindu law said, my dear friends, if a high caste person, he beat up a low caste person and they went to court, the low caste, the court would say, the high caste person is justified. Why? Because he's high caste. He has a right to beat the low caste person. That was the Hindu law. Now when the British brought in what is called the universal law, that was the first time that the Hindu law was hit badly and caste, you know, it took a hit. Urbanization, urbanization, because we are living in a city where caste does not work out. If you go in a bus, my dear friends, it's not a low caste or a high caste, everything has to sit together, trains, everything has to sit together. Okay, so there is, the caste was again hit there also. But caste consciousness is not totally gone. People are still caste conscious. You know, in this book, uh, there was a research I did. I gave out a questionnaire to about uh, 125 people, you know, and uh, over 35 questions. And one of the questions was, by what name do you want to be called? That was the question. By what name do you want to be called? And I had given four options, like our KBC. Four options. Choose one. Okay? And the four options were, do you want to be known by your first name? Do you want to be known by your surname? Do you want to be known by a professional name? And fourth option I had given. I said, please take one. Very clearly. When I got back the responses, 95% of them had ticked two. And these are educated people. Graduate, postgraduates. And what are the two they, they would have uh, ticked? Surname and professional name. What does the surname indicate? Their caste. What does their professional name indicate? Their class their class, their status. I am a doctor, I am an engineer, they want to be known by that. They also want to be known that I am a Brahmin or a Kshatriya or a Baniya or whatever. Okay? So, you should be knowing this because their caste may not permit them to sit with you or take food from you. You know, they may be considering that these people are not our caste. We cannot even drink water from them. But, because you are of the same class, you are as educated as them, they will sit with you because they want to be known by their class also. The interaction of class and caste that constantly goes on and we should know how that is acting in their life. Implication for witness, do not overstep caste barriers. When you start witnessing, don't go and say, in Christianity there is no caste. You are finished. Your witness is over there. Do not over overstep caste barriers too soon. Do not try to create a multi-caste church too fast. Okay? Very important. 
present Christian eschatology, okay, what the world is coming to, present freedom in Christ, the fear of the unknown, as far as we are concerned, we do not have fear of the unknown, to that extent that they have, we also have fear of the unknown to some extent, but not to the extent that they have, okay, present identity in Christ versus the caste identity, okay, the last thing, some of the social characteristics, these people are consumerists, my dear friends, wealth is very important, okay, I've got a mobile, which is now maybe quite old, okay, and yet I'm keeping it, because my son has given it to me, I keep using it, and I keep using it till it comes out. Not so the young people. Not so my son also. A little bit of a problem and he says, let's throw this away, let's get a new one. Why? Because they've got money. This particular group of people, they've got enough. The market runs on the educated middle class. All the brands that are there, from Nike to everything else, they, runs, they run on the educated middle class. They are the people who run the market. Okay? These are also people who value education to a great degree. They want to get educated, you know, as they want to educate their children. These are people who want to go up in their life, upwardly, upwardly mobile, careerist. When I say careerist, I'm not saying that they just want to go up, but they want to go up by any means. If they have to place their foot on your shoulder and go up, they may be your best friend, they will not hesitate in doing that. Because for them, Going up is more important than your friendship. Right or wrong? Yes. Okay, you need to be aware of that. Okay? Their Hindu way of life does not apply to them. They are more secularist. They are highly creative. Okay? They are the people who dominate the art. So, what are the implications for that for us? Develop a theology of money. What does the Bible say about money? Does it say anything about money? It says a lot about money. Develop a theology of education, okay? Develop a theology of work. Does the, does the Bible say anything about education and work? Where is the first place where God tells us that we need, that education is important? Let me ask you that question. We are running out of time. Where is the first place in the Bible where God tells us that you need to be educated? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. When God created man, what do you tell man? Go and dominate the earth. That doesn't mean just go and, you know, uh, become more and more people. That's not what he was saying only. He's saying, go and find out what the earth is all about. This earth has come out from where? From my mind. Right? You go and find out what this earth is all about. That's what education is all about. And when did education start? It started right there. If you see Genesis chapter, maybe chapter 4, it says people started digging. And what did they find? They found copper. They found iron. And what did they start making? Any idea? They started making musical instruments out of copper. They started making tools and tackles out of uh, iron. What are they doing? The first geologist was there in Genesis chapter 4. The first blacksmith were there in Genesis chapter 4. Okay. So, basically education starts there and, and man, you know, has been told by God or commanded by the first command of God was to get educated. But, does education have limitations? Can we make education the purpose of our life? Why? What does the Bible say about it? All is? All is in vain. Solomon, after getting all that knowledge, all that education, you read about him, I think his first king somewhere, it says, he was a geologist, he was a botanist, he was an astronomer, everything he knew, and yet in Ecclesiastic he says, all is like biting into the wind, all is like biting into the wind. Because ultimately that does not give the satisfaction that one is looking for. And the end of Ecclesiastics, what does he conclude there? I think it's chapter 13, the last few verses, it says, the ultimate thing is this, that 
you know, unless you have God in your life, your life can never be satisfied. Develop this theology presently to people. Before presenting the gospel, these are all pre-evangelistic tools. Present, presenting, you know, the theology of work, presenting the theology of money, presenting the theology of, of uh, education, which they will, they will kind of, uh, uh, you know, they will be able to take it. You use creative arts, painting. Can we have Christian paintings? Christian prose? Christian poetry? Christian story writing? I think churches need to encourage that. One of my friends who lives in Baroda, he's an engineer by profession. He has, uh, he's a painter. And he has, you know, two or three themes he has developed as far as being with his uh, painting skill. One of the themes was on creation. What is creation according to the Bible? All through about 35 to 40 paintings. And he put that, he put that in uh, the public uh, uh, art gallery. Where people could come and see. Does that make an effect? That is what we need to do. Inclusion of the matter, my dear friends. First Peter chapter 3 verse 15. Be ready to give an answer for everything. The hope we have. Readiness, my dear friends, requires training. Unless we are trained, our mind, our heart is spiritually, spiritually trained and academically trained, we can never be good witnesses. Okay? Proclamation requires a collective effort. The church has to be involved. There will be people who, who get involved in the creative arts, people who get involved in writing stories from Christian perspective, people who get involved in, in uh, writing the theology of work, the theology of education. Okay? A collective word. And lastly, it needs to be a continuous process. It just needs to be persistence. If you want to work among this particular group, there needs to be persistence. Okay, so it's a tough work. I've taken a little more time, but I hope I've given you a kind of hunger 